are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. It's just about time for us to get started. It's actually one minute till the top of the hour, right when I'm starting this, but I assume that people are going to join along the way for our Thursday afternoon live YouTube question and answer time. Although I do need to tell you that uh, I say Thursday afternoon because normally when I do this from my home on the West Coast of California, uh, it starts at 12 noon on Thursday afternoon. Uh, But right now I'm in Europe, specifically I'm in Sweden as I was last Thursday Last Thursday when I joined you, I was at a home out in the middle of Sweden, uh, enjoying a wonderful time together with a small group of pastors and uh, Christian workers. And uh, I'm at the tail end of that trip right now. Matter of fact, I'm here in a hotel room, a kind of small hotel room. I'm looking across at my wife, who's sitting on the bed right over there. And uh, she'll come in and pop in in just a few moments. I'll, I'll let her know when a good time is for that. Uh, And we're here together in this hotel room right near the airport in Gothenburg, Sweden. And uh, we're going to leave very early tomorrow uh, on our way back to the west coast of California. So very happy that you could join us here today. And uh, today is a little bit different because I don't have so much of a specific lead question. I got a couple questions that have come in that I want to deal with first. But today, we're going to give more time just for your questions on the live chat. So if you're watching on YouTube, leave a question in the side chat. If you're watching on Facebook, go ahead and send us something in the comments. And if you're watching on TWR360, hey, welcome to our TWR360 audience. We're so glad that you could join us. And we got a lot of respect for that ministry that for many years has been doing a great job of getting the Word of God out over shortwave radio. And of course, now their web presence, TWR360, we're very grateful for their uh, uh, presence, for their partnership on these Thursday afternoon, or as it is here now, evening in Sweden, uh, for these times that we have together. Now, I do want to give just a couple of comments and say what an interesting time it is being here in Europe Uh, At this time, when there has been an invasion by Russia uh, into the nation of Ukraine. And as you might imagine, as much interest and sort of uh, turmoil that there is about this, uh, from what I read in the United States, uh, it's even more real here in Europe. And if I could specifically say Northern Europe, because geographically speaking, we're not all that far from the nations that are involved here. And uh, there's talk about nations such as Finland and Sweden uh, being of interest in this whole turmoil and this whole sort of catastrophe in some regard uh, later on as things develop. And so um, we should pray. We should pray that God's will uh, is exercised in and through his powerful judgments, through his mercy, through his love, that God's justice and grace would prevail, and especially pray that God's people, uh, his church, the community of his people, can be a very strong light and a beacon of hope in troubled times. You know, listen, being a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean that we are immune 
to the suffering, the pain, and the difficulties of this world. Uh, look, we pray that God would, would preserve us from such things, and we rejoice every time he does. But we don't have a transactional relationship with God. As if we were to say, well, I'll submit my life to Jesus Christ and I'll serve him as long as he makes everything comfortable for me and gives me the things that I really want, as if God is sort of my servant instead of me being his servant. We don't think that way in the Christian life. And so we see times of great turmoil, times of great catastrophe in the world as times for the church of Jesus Christ to provide that beacon of hope and that message of good news in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to get to a few of the questions that have come in here uh, already. And uh, one of the questions comes from one of our TWR 360 uh, viewers, Char. And Char brings this question. He says, I have a question about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 32. Please explain what our spirit is since in this verse, it is separate from our souls. Okay, so let me read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Char, thank you for that question. And I just want to begin by saying... It's a valid thing for us to consider um, this aspect of humanity, of what we are as human beings. Uh, are we a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit? Or are we a two-part being with body and then soul, spirit kind of being the same thing? And I would say that I believe the biblical evidence, even though I'll admit this is an area that people like to make controversy about and argue about, and that's fine. But I believe that the evidence biblically is that there is a distinction between soul and spirit. And I think that this passage that you bring up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, is an excellent example of the distinction between soul and spirit. Now, I don't know if we can in-depth detail what all the differences are, but I'll explain that in just a moment. Otherwise, just to say, I do want to point out that um, there is no absolutely consistent definition of soul and spirit throughout the scriptures. There are several places in the Bible where soul and spirit are used to refer to the same thing, basically the non-material part of a human being. We understand that we as human beings are made up of more than our material being. There is a non-material, a spiritual, a metaphysical aspect, uh, something that goes beyond the physical. And, and uh, there are places in the scriptures where soul and spirit are used synonymously to refer to that non-material part. But there are other places, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 being among them, which seem to make a clear distinction between soul and spirit. And if I could give sort of, and I, I, want, I want to be free to admit that the Bible doesn't really give us much of a specific definition of what the soul is as opposed to the spirit. But let me give you some thoughts that I would have. I believe that the soul is the non-material part of our being that all humanity shares, 
no matter what their relationship with Jesus Christ is. Um, In other words, a person can be spiritually dead, that is dead to true life in Jesus Christ, yet their soul is alive and they can enjoy non-material things in this world, such as music, such as literature, such as ennobling art, such as other wonderful, good, soulish pursuits. There are things that are non-material that are commonly enjoyed by humanity, no matter what that person's spiritual condition. This is the distinction I would make in some regards. So some people define the soul as that which reflects the mind, the will, and the emotions. Of course, those things being all three things that people have just common to humanity, no matter what their spiritual state or condition is. The spirit is that aspect of a person that is made to respond to relationship with God. It's that true spiritual aspect of a person, which is in some sense dead before it's made alive in Jesus Christ. So, Char, that's the distinction I would make. Although we do need to recognize, as I said before, that there are several passages of Scripture where the two terms are used to basically mean the same thing. But there are some other passages where there really does seem to be a difference made. All right. um, Let me go on to the next question here by Chris. Although, uh, let me see if Ingalil would like to come on over. Now, Some people have asked when Inga Lil, my wife, and I can do a question and answer together. And I can't give you a specific time. I'll just kind of say soon. Uh, We're going to wait till we get at home. It's a little bit easier for us to do it. But I think Inga Lil at least wants to come by and say (laughs) hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. So excited to be here in the same room. Yeah. Usually you're way out in the other side of the house. That's right. Last week I was away. And anyway. Now you're here. So... Uh, I don't know when we're going to do, do it. I have no idea. We're going to plan it. We're going to let it um, work out really good with our schedules. So that do do, you, do you think that ever you would do a program for me instead of me? No, you don't no. think so? <laughs> we'll do it together, but <laughs> okay, not we'll instead. We'll do it together. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. okay. Sometime okay. soon. Sometimes. Next, next couple months. Next couple months, for sure. Next okay, couple good. months. Yeah. Okay, good. Have a Thank good time. You, See you. All right. All right. So... Now, she's just walking over on the other side of the room here. So, <laughs> Okay, it's a fairly small hotel room, but it'll be comfortable for the night. We have to get up pretty early anyway tomorrow morning. Yeah, Four o'clock in the morning, we have to check in for our flight. Okay, anyway, let me go to the next question that comes from a YouTube listener. Chris, Chris asks this question. Is it scripturally correct for believers in Christ to refer to themselves as sinners— saved by God's grace in light of scripture passages such as 2 Corinthians chapter 5.16, Galatians 2.20, and Romans 6.6-7. Okay, Chris, that's a good question. And I, I think that I, I think that there's some nuance in this, if I could say, that there is a way that a Christian can refer to themselves as a sinner, which I think is consistent with biblical truth. And there is another way that a Christian can refer themselves as a sinner.
that I think would be a contradiction, somewhat of a denial. That might be a little bit strong, but somewhat of a denial of biblical truth. Now, I'll explain it like this. We need to recognize that even though we are no longer characterized and dominated by a sin nature when we are born again, when we're born again, our sins are not merely forgiven, thank the Lord that they are, but beyond our sins being forgiven, we are also given a new nature. The nature we were born with was patterned after rebellious Adam, but we receive a new nature. We become a new person. We're born again. Old things have passed away. All things become new. And so this new nature is patterned not after Adam, but after the image of Jesus Christ himself. Nevertheless, our salvation is not yet complete until we are resurrected and glorified with God in heaven. And until we have that glorification, we will continue to sin. So we don't want to act as if we, on this side of eternity, uh, stop sinning. Now, we can have and we should have a life that's no longer dominated by sin. We should have a life that experiences victory over sin, not perfectly, of course, but in some measure for certain. Um, but yet sin will remain until our salvation is complete. Hey, when we're together in heaven, no more sin. Isn't that a wonderful thing? No more sin in heaven. But really, we can say not until heaven will there be no more sin. So in that sense, we can say that we acknowledge that we are still sinners, yet we have been forgiven, we have been justified, we've been adopted, and, and we are on the track to receive the completion of our salvation, our glorification and resurrection. Yet we will sin until then. So in that sense. However, if a person uses the terminology that they are a sinner in the sense that there's really no difference between someone who is born again and someone who isn't born again, then I think that there's some problems with that. For example, sometimes we use a saying, a cliche that goes something like this. Um, a Christian is just a beggar telling other beggars where they can find bread. Okay, look, I understand the heart, the sentiment behind that expression. But if you really want to take it just literally as it expresses, it would say, no, the, the, the Christian is not the same as they were. They just now have some spiritual bread in their hand. That believer has been forgiven of their sins. They've been given the Holy Spirit that gives them empowering and victory over sin. They have been given a new nature patterned after the nature of Jesus Christ. They've been adopted into the family of God. And I could go on and on. They're not just a beggar who's received some bread. Now, again, I understand the sentiment behind those kind of cliches or sayings. Uh, they're, they're trying to keep Christians with a humble place and realizing and, you know, close to their roots. But, but it's not technically true. Here's another one that's not technically true. I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, I don't see very many of them out these days, but years ago, occasionally, I would see a bumper sticker that would say something like this. 
Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. Okay, and again, I understand the sentiment behind that statement. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. The sentiment is, look, let's be humble as Christians. We don't think we're perfect. We don't think we're holier than thou. I I don't have any uh, complaint with the statement Christians aren't perfect. Of course, we're not perfect. I don't have any problem with the statement Christians are forgiven. Of course, we're forgiven. Here's the one word I have a problem with in that statement. Just. Christians aren't just forgiven. Again, we've received all those things in Jesus Christ. So really, Chris, there is a little bit of a tension at work here. We don't want to act as if we have received the completion of our salvation and uh, the elimination of sin in our lives um, on this side of eternity, but neither do we want to define ourselves by those things. So I, I would sort of error, perhaps on the side, of uh, declaring who we are in Jesus Christ as being adopted into his family, being filled with God's Spirit, as being justified by faith through his marvelous, marvelous grace, on and on. I would probably err on that side, but I don't have a problem properly understood a Christian explaining that they're still a sinner. So I hope you understand what I'm getting at there in that question, Chris, and thank you for it. Uh, Next question comes from Jeanette uh, from our YouTube audience. And Jeanette asks this question. uh, What is the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey or a colt? And what about the palm branches throughout the Old and New Testament? Okay, Jeanette, that's a wonderful question. Uh, What we're thinking about is the event that we often call the triumphal entry, or sometimes we refer to it as Palm Sunday. It's that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, on something of a parade, and he was riding a donkey or a colt. I think that this was rich with meaning on several aspects. First of all, Jesus's riding of a donkey or a colt Uh, In other words, a relatively small mounted animal. It was not even as large as a mule, and it was certainly not a majestic uh, stallion, you know, a war horse that a conquering general would ride. Now, it's significant because, number one, it was prophesied. I believe it's in the prophet Zechariah, and the Gospels make that plain that this was prophesied. Number two, uh, it's important because it shows that Jesus came not as a conquering general. The Romans were very familiar with the concept of what they called the triumph. We might call it the triumph parade, but it was this procession where a victorious general was presented to the nation. Uh, to the Rome, typically, in this really uh, glorious parade, declaring how great the power of that general was. There would be soldiers and captured slaves and models of their victories and all kinds of, you know, pageantry in this. And and the center of it was the um, general, the conquering general, being presented with these magnificent horses demonstrating his power. Jesus was something of a mirror opposite to that. He came as a humble king. Uh, 
He came in as a servant king. He came as a king that would conquer most certainly. Let me tell you, friends, Jesus Christ has conquered and will continue to conquer and will ultimately conquer. But he conquers through his sacrificial love. And so he came as a humble king. That's really a a large part of this idea behind the donkey and the colt. It's a fairly humble animal, although the donkey and the colt had some association with royalty and being a royal mount, but it it wasn't the mount of a general or a warlord. Then you also make mention of palm branches. Um, Jeanette, let me just say, uh, it doesn't immediately come to mind an Old Testament association with the palm branches. But I do know that there was a very definite association of palm branches with the um, Maccabees, those group of Jewish separatists and freedom fighters, if you will, breaking um, a independent Jewish state away from, uh, generally speaking, I'll call it the Greek government, it's more complicated than that but the, the, the governments of that time that sought to oppress them. The palm branch in those days was a symbol of a national independent Israel. And I'm sure that that was some of the significance because this messianic hope that was placed upon Jesus Christ was expressed at least in some regard, the idea that he would deliver the people from the Roman government from the Roman oppression. So again, Jeanette, I hope that helps you there. And let me go on to the next question here from Jennifer. By the way, I I don't even know if you really understand how I do this. I'm not really prepared for these questions. I'm reading them off an iPad. You submit your questions uh, on YouTube, on the side chat, in Facebook, on the comments, in TWR360 through the response form. Those are reviewed by our moderator, Devin, and Devin passes them on to me. Uh, I need to let you know, too, I I don't tell Devin, hey, just give me the easy questions or something. What I do tell Devin is try to select the questions that you think will have the broadest appeal. But I do want you to know that we take note of the chat questions that come in that we weren't able to get to, and we hope to, in later question and answer broadcasts, get to some of those questions. So again, this next question comes from Jennifer. It says, comparing Matthew 5.16 and Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, again, these are uh, passages from the Sermon on the Mount, should you give publicly or privately Thanks for clearing this up. Now, Matthew 5.16 says this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 say, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Jennifer, that's a great question. And I think that in this particular situation, Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let our good works to be known among men. I think that's speaking of good works in a very general sense. 
uh, you know, just the acts of love and kindness and faithfulness and goodness that we would do for other people and with other people. I think that that's fundamentally what Jesus had in mind there. I think when Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, he's speaking about more specifically uh, the practice of giving, uh, being generous with our financial things. And when Jesus speaks about that, I think it's very important for us to realize that it is important for our giving to be done not in a way that would draw attention and glory for ourselves. When we do good works for the purpose of self-glorification, then as Jesus explains in the Sermon on the Mount, we have our reward. What Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he talked about doing good works not for self-glorification, but for God-glorification. And I really think that that's the line. There seems to be something kind of unique about the dynamic of the way that we give financially out of our material needs or out of our material substance, that um, it, it's just easier to do that to the glory of me instead of the glory of God. And that's what God wants us to avoid. So in general, let's just say that there's a sense in which our good works can and should be publicly known as they can be examples of things get done unto the glory of God. But as much as possible for us, we need to avoid doing good works in a way that would bring any glory or credit or a spotlight upon ourselves. No, instead, we're to do it in secret uh, so that God gets the glory. As well, we need to consider this as well. When our um, generosity is ostentatious to other people, when it's uh, just kind of out there and in their face and well-known, sometimes it puts the people who are receiving the hospitality, the, the generosity, into a difficult and awkward place. And we never want to do that. That's not love in itself either. So again, Jennifer, I would just bring you back to the idea of making a separation of making things public for the glory of God and making things public for the glory of me. That's uh, the distinction I would make between those things. But man, that's a good question, Jennifer. Let me go on to the next question coming to me from Joe, who writes on Facebook. Again, hi to all of our Facebook viewers. You know, it's just been in the last few months that we begin to also put this uh, live Q&A out on Facebook Live as well. Previously, it was only on YouTube. So I'm happy to welcome our Facebook viewers. Our YouTube viewers have been around for a longer time, and I think we have more of an established following. But we're happy to welcome our Facebook viewers as well. Anyway, uh, Joe from Facebook writes this question. Why aren't there more in-depth studies on hermeneutics in the church? Especially since past, for pastors, this is a required area of study to be a good workman. Well, Joe, you ask as for why. Um, I think part of it is, is because um, it's not always easy to simply explain principles 
of good biblical interpretation. I think many people are more familiar with the habits of good biblical interpretation without necessarily being able to explain those habits. And of course, if we're going to teach something, we need to be able to explain it well. So I think that the most important thing to do with hermeneutics is to model good hermeneutics by good Bible teaching and preaching. You know, when we, as Bible teachers and preachers, do a bad job with the text that's in front of us, I think it really um, uh, gives people bad examples about how to interpret the Bible. So every pastor or teacher should be, by their example, showing good hermeneutics. But I agree with you. There, there's awful lot of opportunities for us to teach people how to do a better job with understanding. And, and if you're uh, unaware of this, hermeneutics, you could call it this, the, um, it's the science, if you will, the science or the study of uh, biblical interpretation. How do we understand the Bible? Uh, how do we um, see a passage and let it speak for itself and get a meaning for it that is true and that is also helpful and applicable for our lives. So th that's really what hermeneutics is. And I need to give one other factor because, again, I, I can't get away from your um, aspect of your question here, Joe, where you're asking uh, why. Why is it this way? Well, one other thing is that in our modern age, we have in some ways, given up on hermeneutics, on any kind of methodology or science, so to speak, of biblical interpretation. And it seems like the only thing people care about is what a passage or a verse means to me. Look, we need to get beyond this. What a verse means to me is not necessarily uh, what it actually means. We, we need to be able to say, this is what the passage means. Now, uh, application of a biblical passage can certainly be much more subjective in our understanding. But it means what it means. Uh, it, it's not something just for us to sort of pick and choose what we would think that our meaning is. So uh, I think it's very important for us to say, if we're going to talk about the Bible, share it in home Bible studies, in Bible study discussion groups, that we do our best to be people who understand the Bible rightly. Now, let me add a little bit on this end. Uh, I, I don't know who all of you are out watching here today, uh, or maybe you're going to watch this later on recorded. Uh, I said this at the very beginning, but I'll say it again. I'm obviously not at my home on the west coast of California. I'm actually on the west coast of Sweden. I'm at the airport near Gothenburg. And uh, my wife and I are going to fly out of this and head back to California early tomorrow morning. Uh, but a big part of the work that God has given me to do in my life is to produce and improve and distribute a... Bible commentary that most people use online. It's also available, much of it is available in print, 
And there's certain Bible study softwares that you can get it with, Logos and BibleSoft. But most people who use my Bible commentary use it for free online. By the way, we're just very pleased with the traffic that we've been having the last few months. Uh, a lot of people are taking advantage of these resources, which we're thrilled about in any regard. My Bible commentary, the Enduring Word Bible commentary that can be found at EnduringWord.com. Look, I, I think it's helpful for many people. I understand that there's no Bible commentary that's going to be a good fit for everybody. But I'm just blessed that there are a fair number of people who find uh, the commentary that I have on the Bible to be helpful, at least in some way. So if you need help in your understanding of the Bible, go to EnduringWord.com. I think you'll find my commentary clear, simple, easy to use, and uh, helpful both for those who have been studying or teaching the Bible for many decades, but it's also helpful for people who are just new to the Bible because I've really endeavored to write it with clarity and simplicity. So I hope that I, in whatever way I can, am modeling good hermeneutics, good biblical interpretation. Okay, uh, next is a question from Jordan, who says, do you believe Russia is Rosh in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Why? All right. I'm going to do something here, Jordan, uh, because I can't exactly remember my comments on that passage, but I can look it up. And what I'm looking up right now is the Enduring Word Bible app, where in just a few clicks I can go to Ezekiel chapter 38 and see what it is that I have to say about Rosh. Now, Gog and Magog, specifically Gog, these are places that are associated with, in the minds of many people, modern-day Russia. And so I'm looking here, uh, Ezekiel chapter 38, let me read you verses 1, 2, and 3. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And he goes on to describe why he's against him. Because these princes of these lands that are mentioned here in Ezekiel chapter 38 and into chapter 39 come against God's covenant people, the people of Israel. Now, when I say God's covenant people, I don't mean the new covenant, although the ultimate salvation of Israel is an aspect of the new covenant. I'm talking about the covenant that God made with them going back to the days of Abraham and also expressed in the new covenant. Okay, excuse me, in the old covenant, the covenant made at Sinai. But here it says, the prince of Rosh, here's my comments, I'm reading it here, has also been translated as chief prince with the idea that Rosh describes the greatness of the prince, not a place where the prince rules. Uh, translators and interpreters do not agree if it should be the prince of Rosh or chief prince. If Rosh is to be understood 
as the name of a people or a place, it has no other connection or reference in the Old Testament. There are many who think that Rosh speaks of Russia or the Russians, but only direct evidence of this is the similar sound of the names. Okay, so do you understand what I'm saying here again? You could look it up on my Bible commentary, EnduringWord.com, or download the app. But in my commentary on Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, I point out that there is no biblical or historical connection between Rosh and Russia other than the similarity in the sounds of their name. And, and let me just say, I don't think that that's enough to go on to make a identification. It's much more likely that Rosh there simply refers to a chief prince or a great prince. There is much better ground for making an identification between Gog, Magog. Uh, again, Magog is a person. Um, Gog seems to be a, uh, a, a strange enemy of Israel here. Um, these things uh, are, are those that are normally and historically associated with some of the lands that make up today modern-day Russia. But I don't see a connection there with Rosh. The only connection there seems to be the similar sound of their names. Hope that's helpful for you there, Jordan. Um, let me go on here to a question, again, coming in from our YouTube audience from Shenandoah. Shenandoah asks this question. Is there any significance of Jesus's tunic not having a seam in it right before his crucifixion where the soldiers are casting lots for his clothes? You know, I have to say, um, I, I've heard some people try to make kind of a spiritualized thing. You know, it speaks of eternity, something that's without end, a seamless tunic. I've heard other people try to make the association. This indicates that Jesus wore expensive clothing. I'm less amenable to that idea there. Um, I, I think it's just something remarkable about the clothing of Jesus that would be noticed by an eyewitness. One of the things that's marvelous about the biblical record in general and the record of the Gospels in particular is how many small details there are that would really only be mentioned or noticed by an eyewitness. In other words, if you were making up a story, you would never put in such small, seemingly tangential or irrelevant details such as this. And so I, I don't look for a great symbolic significance to the seamless garments of Jesus, other than to show that it was valuable enough, making it valuable enough, that the soldiers would want to gamble for it, thus fulfilling the prophecy noted in Psalm 22, where prophetically David spoke of people casting lots for the clothing of the crucified Messiah. So I'm sure there's that relevance to it. It indicates that there was a value of it that would make it worth gambling for. And again, that was prophetically fulfilled. Let me go to another question here from YouTube from Tim. Tim says, was Joseph the only one in the Bible that had premonitions of the future? 
I'm not sure if this was an example of someone who could see a future event. Well, Tim, if we sort of take that idea broadly, there were many people who had some kind of premonition of the future. Just about any one of the prophets, um, even uh, Abraham was given some kind of premonition of the future in the vision that he had of the smoking oven and the burning torch, which God told him would represent in some way the destiny of the covenant people that would come from him. Um, Moses was given direction or premonition of the future. He's called a prophet. Um, uh, Elijah spoke prophetically. And so there were many people. Now, I can't think of many others in the Bible who had um, dreams that were premonitions of the future. Although, interestingly and notably, the wife of Pontius Pilate had a dream where I believe God spoke to her and told her and warned Pilate to have nothing to do with this righteous person, Jesus Christ, that would be on trial before him. But unfortunately, tragically, you could say, a Pilate rejected that divine message, and he went right ahead with his trial of Jesus Christ. So, well, there's definitely people and places who were given what we might call prophetic insight into the future. And um, premonition sounds a little too vague. I, I think this is God just simply speaking to people about the future. Joseph's revelations were not premonitions. They were revelations from God. And that's the distinction I would make. Thank you for your question there, Joseph. Or excuse me, Tim. Tim is the one who had that question. Uh, Daniel asks a question. Does Ezekiel chapter 38 or 39 war happen before or after the rapture? Daniel, I'll give you my opinion on that. I think that the scriptures don't tell us enough to be clear. Um, this is one of these very interesting prophetic events that at least in my mind, there's no firm biblical grounding in a timeline. I've seen some people make the case that it happens before the tribulation. Some people make the case it happens in the midst of the tribulation. Some people at the very end of the tribulation. Uh, there's also at least some case for it to be made that the battle as a whole happens at the end of the millennium. But again, th there's certain complicated issues involved in that. So I'll just give you my very quick answer to that, Daniel. I don't think that the scriptures speak specifically enough for us to really understand and say with any kind of certainty where exactly on the prophetic timeline that particular um, battle, the one that's described there in Ezekiel 38, 39, where God dramatically delivers Israel from these attackers from the north, some of whom made up lands that are at least in part encompassed by modern-day Russia. Uh, YouTube question. Uh, from Tunnel Banana, Tunnel Banana, it's not banana, <laughs> it's, it's Swedish for subway, um, is asking here, hello from Sweden, do you think the rapture will come soon if World War III breaks out in the whole Russian-Ukraine war situation? Well, all right, I, I'll give a very succinct answer to this. I don't think that any particular war or conflict is a sign of the end. 
But in general, God has given us many reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon. And we have the specific command from Jesus Christ that we should watch and be ready for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That gives us reason enough to say we should expect the coming of Jesus Christ soon. Hey, listen, if you expect that Jesus is coming soon and make yourself ready for his coming, your, your life is right. You're doing what you can to preach the gospel, to love others, and you live with a sense of urgency about the present age. Your life is not the loser if you go to heaven by natural causes before the return of Jesus Christ. God wants us to live in a state of anticipation and readiness, not maniacal fervor, but certainly anticipation and readiness. Okay, let me go on to the next question here from Tyner. It says, when God said, I'll cause my goodness to pass by you, what did Moses actually see? Okay, um, Tyner, I'm going to recommend that you go to my commentary for this one, but I'll give you a little bit of a suggestion from it. Because I think I explain it in greater depth. But let me give you just kind of a, of a shortened version of this. What Moses saw was what I would call the after effects of God's presence and glory. We know that a comet is this, you know, ball of whatever it is, rock iron metal that's basically blazing through the sky, uh, orbiting planets and through the solar system. We know that a comet has a tail behind it. And actually the tail doesn't have much substance. It's mostly gas, but yet there's a reality to it. The, the tail of the comet isn't technically the comet itself. It's what passes behind the comet. I would say that in a sense, Moses saw behind God. God passed in front of him. Uh, Moses was able to see the after effects after God's passing. Again, I explained this in my commentary in greater depth, so I recommend that you go there and, and just read the explanation that I've given. But that's basically what it was that Moses saw. Moses did not see God um, in all his glory or you know, in his face. Now, the, the phrase is used, Moses met with God face to face, but that's used as an expression of speech, just simply meaning with great and tremendous intimacy with God. But we remember what the scriptures tell us, no man can see God's face and live. So Moses didn't see that, but he saw, if you will, the after effects, the tail of the comet, so to speak, from the presence of God. Um, next question comes from, let me go down here, Race, who says, why does Satan make so few personal appearances in the Bible? Mm. Race, writing from YouTube, um, Race, I, I think it's because Satan generally knows that a lot of his best work is done in disguise. Now, believe me, there are times when Satan wants the direct attention and glory and, you know, all that around him. But many times Satan feels that his best work is done, to use an expression, 
under the radar so that it's not so obvious that he's at work. I think Satan does a lot of work in this world under the radar, out of obvious view. And so I, I think that is a, a large part of the equation. If, if people were more aware of the directness of Satan's work, they would be less inclined to do the things he would want them to do. Now, certainly there, there would be some people that the more obvious Satan was, the more they would be attracted to him. But I don't think that's the majority of humanity. God has put something of an enmity between us and the grosser parts of satanic darkness. That's why Satan, when he appears, as the scriptures tell us, often appears as an angel of light. Um, so I guess, race that's the best explanation I would give. Um, here's a question from Freya. And then after this question from Freya, I want to get to a longer question that was sent in by somebody else. Um, Freya asks, uh, was Melchizedek Jesus as some people claim? Okay, um, Bible students and scholars debate this question. Freya, I would say that I do not believe that Melchizedek was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, although I'll agree it's possible. I very well could be wrong on this. It's not something that I really want to fight about passionately. But I lean more towards the category of Melchizedek being simply a very powerful type or representation of Jesus Christ, but him being a human being just like any of us. That's kind of where I lean. Um, I think there is a case to be made especially from some of the things that are said about Melchizedek in Hebrews, that he was, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But as much as I am kind of blown away by the description of Melchizedek in Hebrews, I don't think that that's demanded by the biblical text. So I lean towards um, the idea that Melchizedek is simply a type a prefiguring of Jesus, that he was a human being, just in some ways that Moses prefigured Jesus uh, or Joseph prefigured Jesus, um, but he was not actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Though, again, I, I, I can see the case for the other way as well. Um, uh, one more before I get to the longer question I want to answer from Shell, um, as is uh, on YouTube. In the view of Job and God, uh, let Satan do bad things. What rules are Satan and God playing by? Well, so let me express it to you this way. In the big picture, Satan plays by God's rules. In other words, God has established limitations to what Satan can do. And so um, ultimately, Satan must play by God's rules. Ultimately, everybody plays by God's rules. God is God, and that's just how things go. Now, what rules do God play by? Well, God isn't under rules in that effect, but we would say this. God has a plan. God has a purpose. 
God has a plan of the ages. His plan is in one respect to use the church to reveal his many-sided wisdom to angelic beings uh, as a teaching, as a lesson to them. Now, that's not the only purpose in God's eternal plan, but uh, Ephesians in chapter 1 and chapter 3 speak of this. So, God has an unfolding plan of the ages, and God is allowing Satan to do his work because ultimately it advances what God wants to do in his unfolding plan of the ages. Look, uh, we instinctively think, many of us, that the ideal world would be a world of innocence where sin never existed. There was never any pain, never any suffering, never any, that this would be the ultimate world. I, I just want you to know that's not God's idea. God, in his perfect, wonderful plan of the ages, lets us know that greater than the world of innocence is the world of redemption. And you can't have a world of redemption unless there's sin and pain and suffering to redeem us from. So I hope that answers that for you there, uh, Shell. I hope that's helpful for you there. Now, I'm going to go to one last question here that came in. And it came in by email, but I want to spend a little bit of time. It came in from Teresa. And Teresa asks, because I'm going to paraphrase the question. Teresa says, a dear sister in Christ, she's just a new believer, has a brother-in-law. They love each other very much. And the brother-in-law has pancreatic cancer and liver cancer. His days are very few. And Teresa's question is this. How can this dear sister lead him into the arms of God through Jesus Christ? Listen, friends, it's really a very significant question. How can someone be an agent to lead others to Jesus Christ? Well, let, let me say a few questions here. Number one, we need to pray. And Teresa indicates that, that prayer is being offered in this. And thank the Lord for that. Dedicated prayer and fasting needs to be made in such a case. If someone is approaching death and doesn't know Jesus Christ, we should pray, pray, pray that they would come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But then number two, when we have opportunity to speak to them, we must speak to them about putting their hope in Jesus and taking hope away from themselves. Now, oftentimes when people know that they're going to die, this is easier. When you know you're going to die, it's easy to take hope off of yourself. You know that you need an outside hope. You know that you need a Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. But there's a very real sense in which only those who truly believe that they need a Savior will come to him. So to give our lives to Jesus Christ, to receive the salvation he offers, there needs to be a sense of need. There needs to be a turning from sin and self. 
And there needs to be a putting up our trust, our faith, our hope in who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did to save us, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection. So I would speak very simply and straightforwardly, covered with prayer, because look, no one can come to God unless he's drawn by the Holy Spirit. People don't come to God primarily because of the eloquence of a preacher or the power of a surroundings. If somebody truly comes to God, it's because the Spirit of God has moved upon their heart. So prayer plays an essential role of this. But we want to be able to explain as simply, as lovingly, and as clearly to people as possible their need for a Savior, and then what God has provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, and what Jesus did to rescue us, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection, if you want to say, at the empty tomb. This is what we need to trust in. And again, to genuinely put our trust in those things is to take away any trust that we can or want to save ourselves, and it's to turn away from sin and self. Teresa, I'll, I'll pray for this friend of yours. This uh, you, you describe this person as being a dear sister in Christ, and it's her husband that has this severe form of cancer and that we should pray for. So I recommend to you, uh, if you're listening to this right now, or if you hear it at a later time, that you pray for this individual. Apparently his name is Jerry. Pray for Jerry that he would come to a true, abiding, living faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, that's going to be it for today. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, Next week, God willing, and if I live, because that's how we're supposed to pray, according to James. I'll be with you uh, again from my home on the West Coast of uh, Southern California, and we'll do another hour or so together where we come together and I answer your questions. Thank you to Devin, our moderator. Thank you to all of us on our YouTube audience, our TWR360 audience, and our Facebook Live audience, and we hope that you can join us again. God bless you. And greetings to you from the wonderful nation, the kingdom of Sweden. And again, I want to thank my mother and father-in-law, Nils and Gunnar Bergström, for their amazing hospitality these last several days. We love you. We just said goodbye to you not too long ago. And uh, we'll let you know as soon as we get back home to California. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.